but have fine shower. It's hardcore history. When the Second World War in Europe was starting to reach the end stages, Allied generals had conversations about how far they would have to go to defeat Germany. Would the Nazi state or whatever state superseded it during the end of the war, would they give up in time for things to be saved in Germany or were they going to have to go to something the Allied commanders were calling the Carthaginian solution? The Carthaginian solution meant were they going to have to basically level everything and kill everyone in order to achieve victory? Now, the reason they call that sort of a scenario Carthaginian is obviously because once upon a time there was a place called Carthage. And once upon a time, what would be known as the Carthaginian solution was applied to it. And that's why there is no Carthage anymore. You see, the Carthaginian state was wiped out in the ancient world's version of the Second World War by the main competitor, a state that has been compared to the United States or Great Britain or even Germany in the world wars. They were adversaries for more than 100 years, fighting a life or death struggle basically for the supremacy of the known world. And in 146 BC, the side that we call Carthage today met a fate that made Berlin's sacking at the end of the Second World War look positively pacifistic. You can use the words genocide. You can use the words ethnic cleansing. Holocaust would not be out of line. But when the emerging Roman Empire which wasn't an empire yet, destroyed a more than 600-year-old civilization in Africa. It was a sign of things to come. You see, in 146 BC, Rome destroyed its last major competitor for power and world domination, at least the Mediterranean world that the ancients considered to be the world. After 100 years of subduing this state called Carthage. They rolled over the rest of the Mediterranean world rather easily. The wars between Rome and Carthage were the heavyweight championships of antiquity. Now, the reason that the heavyweight championship of the ancient world was up for grabs is that because not that long before this period, Alexander the Great had, you know, like a thunderbolt, destroyed the old world that had existed for a long time died at 32 without consolidating his gains. His empire was split up into a bunch of different states, you know, places like Macedonia, the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt, the Seleucid Empire in Western Asia. And these places had a rough equilibrium. There was no clear champion by the time Rome and Carthage's struggle broke on the world stage. And at the beginning of these wars, Rome was like the United States at the beginning of the First World War. Look at the United States in 1913. It was viewed as a regional power with lots of potential, 
lots of manpower, lots of natural resources, but still a more, you know, local affair. Powerful in their area, but not really one of the greats on the world stage. At the end of the Second World War, less than a lifetime later, the United States is a colossus. The same thing happened to the Romans. At the beginning of the Punic Wars, Rome was an Italian regional state that had just finished consolidating its hold over Italy. It still didn't hold the north of Italy, which the Celtic Gallic tribes held and had just recently conquered the Greek colonies in the south, sort of the heel of the boot of Italy, I guess you could say. A regional power on the rise. Within one lifetime, they would be like the United States was in 1946. They stood astride the world like a colossus. This is what prompted... The greatest history we have of the era, by the way, a Greek who happened to be a hostage in Rome and who knew some of the people who participated in these Punic Wars personally, a guy named Polybius, is the one who wrote extensively on this era. And in his preface or his introduction to his work, he says the reason he chose this was because of its amazingness, that in, well, he said 53 years, it was probably more than that. He said in 53 years for this little regional power to conquer the known world was such an amazing act that he wanted us to know about it. You know, later generations, posterity. I wouldn't say conquering the world either. Dominating the world would probably be better. They didn't conquer some of these places for a while longer. But Rome was definitely the big dog on the block by the end of the Punic Wars. And the problem with this era and these wars between Rome and the city-state of Carthage, which was located near the modern-day city of Tunis in Tunisia. The problem with these wars is that the sheer complexity of the information covers up the amazingness of the events. And while I was doing the research for this program, all I could think about was how much of this stuff that you would find fascinating is drowned out by the names and the dates and the battles and the treaties. It's so convoluted and so complex and so hard to get, you know, your, your handle on what happened first and what happened second and who was playing what role where that the individual things that make it mind-blowing from a human experience standpoint get lost. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Ever fought an elephant in hand-to-hand -hand combat? Put that mental image in your mind for a second. You, your relatives, your neighbors, some acquaintances get together on your street. I'll give you some swords and some spears and some javelins. And I'm going to put an elephant on the other side of the street with one guy on top of him. And I'm going to tell you to go get each other. Imagine that for a minute. Those of you who have ever touched or felt or been close to an elephant at a zoo will start to get a feel for what I'm saying here. Because fighting elephants was one of the human experiences that was a part of the Punic Wars and that gets lost in the translation and the names and the dates and everything. And yet, what a human experience that is. Put yourself in the place of the legionaries having to deal with an oncoming charging elephant with nothing but a spear. The story of the Punic Wars is 
replete with things like this that would blow your mind, but that the historians can't focus on because they're really trying to keep you grounded on the things that will keep the story making sense. First of all, who are we even talking about here? Obviously, you know about the Romans. In the period we're discussing, Rome was a republic on the rise. Many of the um, governmental institutions in Rome are things that people in representative democracies like the United States would recognize today. A system of checks and balances and diffused power. The Romans were paranoid about power ending up in the hands of a single individual, judging from their later history. That was probably a prudent you know, emotion to have or a prudent attitude to have. Every year the Romans would have not one, but two heads of the government appointed, elected by the Senate would be a good way to put it. They called them consuls, and they had two so that they didn't have one person running the show. And the truth was it wasn't even the consuls who normally ran the show, but Rome had a powerful Senate made up of the powerful individuals and strong families in Rome, and these people called the shots most of the time. But there was also the equivalent of a judiciary. Rome looked a lot like the modern democracies do. After all, who do you think our model was? And the funny thing is Rome's main opponent, the Carthaginians, had a similar system. They had a head of government, they had their equivalent of a senate, they had their equivalent of a judiciary. It's interesting to note that these three wars that make up the Punic Wars, the first, second, and third Punic Wars, are all things that were backed by a wide-ranging government on both sides. This wasn't the individual whim of an absolute ruler taking their state to war. This was the government of two states deciding to do this. I wouldn't call them maybe representative of the will of the people, but certainly it was a lot more than just having some dictator decide to do something. Now, Rome was mostly an agrarian place. I mean, they were a big farming state. They did their, tra their share of trading too, but the majority of, of Roman wealth was based on things like farms and agriculture. The Carthaginians were farmers as well and had agrarian interests also, but they were much more of a commercial trading state. They were the great naval power of their age. Um... Carthage itself was a colony of Tyre, which was a Phoenician city. The Carthaginians were Phoenician. Well, at least originally. The Phoenicians, of course, may be the greatest trading people in all the ancient world. There are all sorts of Roman legends as to how the Phoenicians founded Carthage. Historians think that happened somewhere between 800 and 700 BC. But once the Phoenicians got to Carthage, there was mingling going on with the locals. Also, Carthage was a state that did not generally use their own people to fight their wars for them, but recruited mercenary soldiers who would fight for pay from all over the Mediterranean world and then bring them to Carthage. And these people, no doubt, mixed with the local population. I would love to have a sample of Carthaginian DNA today to see who these people really were by the time the Romans were fighting them, which was hundreds of years after their founding. The Romans just called the Carthaginians Africans, and this was their idea of Africa. Now, they almost certainly were not black Africans, the Carthaginians. This is a somewhat controversial subject in the U.S. with some unorthodox histories being written suggesting that the Carthaginians were what we would call sub-Saharan Africans. But, folks, the Sahara Desert was a lot like the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans are today. It was a huge barrier to large numbers of sub-Saharan Africans uh, mingling with the Carthaginians. 
There were probably some, but uh, no one knows how many. Like I said, I'd enjoy seeing a study of Carthaginian DNA if one is ever possible. The Carthaginians founded colonies and cities all over, wherever their ships went in the Mediterranean, eventually cities would grow out of it. And by the time the Romans and the Carthaginians are about to face off, Carthage has cities in Spain, they have cities on all the islands in the western Mediterranean, they of course have their territories in North Africa, and the big area where the Carthaginians are um, expanding is on the island of Sicily. And this becomes the crux of the first war, which is, of course, what leads to the second war, which is, of course, what leads to the third war. Think of Sicily as the cause of the whole darn thing. Sicily, of course, a large island right off the tip of the Italian mainland. It's only about a mile or two distance of water separating um, the very you know, toe of the boot of Italy from the island of Sicily. And in about 270 BC, the Romans had finally rid themselves of competition on the Italian mainland. As I said, there were still Gallic Celtic peoples in the north. To the Romans, this was, this was like, I guess you could say, uh, very, very, very powerful Native American Indian type tribes to them. Probably not a threat to their existence, but certainly troublesome. Nevertheless, they didn't see the Gaul... Celtic people up north right then as more troublesome than the fact that right off their, you know, coastline was a giant rich island with competitors on it, very close to Italy. They had just fought off attacks from over the Adriatic Sea from a Alexander the Great type general, as a matter of fact, a distant relative of Alexander named Pyrrhus of Epirus. And so that sort of woke the Romans up in a in an almost September eleventh way. You know, the way the United States was changed by September 11th. Well, Rome was sort of changed by the invasion of Pyrrhus into understanding that, hey, that little strip of water there doesn't really protect us. And they looked over and they saw Sicily, and they saw two things on Sicily that freaked them out a little bit. The thing that sort of freaked them out was that there were Greek states on Sicily. Greek states in Italy were what had asked Pyrrhus of Epirus to come over in the first place. So the Romans were a little paranoid about that. But what really scared them was that on the western part of Sicily were these Carthaginian cities right near Rome. The way the conflict will break out is another one of those experiences that is hard for modern people to imagine. I would like the ladies in the audience to imagine this because it's something that, well, as I said, hard to imagine. Here's how the war breaks out. There's a Greek city on Sicily with a tyrant, they call them, basically a dictator, a king. And this king uses mercenary paid soldiers to fight his wars for, them, for him. And he had said that when he died, he was going to disband these mercenaries of his. And of course, eventually he does die, and the soldiers don't want to disband. Instead, they band together, give themselves a name. They call themselves the Mamertines, which was named after an Italian version of the name Mars. And they went on a rampage, eventually getting their hands on a city in Sicily, the city that happened to be the closest to the Italian mainland. Kill or exile all the men, and then take over the families and stuff of the people they killed. If I read the ancient historians correctly, it may have actually worked like this. If mercenary A kills person B, he gets to have person B's wife, he gets to raise person B's kids, he gets to sleep in person B's bed and own all his stuff. 
That's the kind of thing that only happens in the ancient world, it seems. Ladies, imagine that the man who kills your husband now becomes your husband. He gets to raise your children. He gets to sleep in your house, have all your stuff you're cooking and taking care of him. Welcome to one of the wonderful experiences that is only found in this amusement park we call the ancient world. Now, lest you think that this weirdness is really unusual, the first thing that happened in Italy when this um, weird incident happened, the Romans had a city down there. Regium, it was called, I believe. And the people in that city looked across that tiny little strip of water and saw what the Mamertines were doing across the way and asked the Romans for help. Please don't let that happen here. So the Romans send down some soldiers. I believe they were Campanian soldiers from the, that region of Italy. Sent them down to this city, Regium, or Regium, to um, protect it from the same thing happening. The soldiers that Rome sends down there looks across the water, sees what the Mamertines have done, and it looks like a good idea to them. So they do it too. Kill all the men or exile them and then take over their families and their stuff. The Romans, by the way, don't look kindly on this. One of the things you will notice about the Romans in this period is they are extremely disciplined, extremely law-oriented, extremely aggressive, and extremely dogged and determined. In Polybius's mind, the reason for the Roman success against other peoples had to do with this attitude, this dogged determination, this never-say-die aggressiveness that was stereotypically Roman. Polybius also thought the Roman institutions, the Senate, and the various ways that the government was organized also played a big role in Rome's success. Modern historians are much more prone to looking at things like the manpower and the uh, you know inherent wealth of Italy and everything, but nobody can ignore the fact that the Roman population and leadership of this period had an attitude to them that made them extremely focused. They definitely had a zero-tolerance policy, we would call it today, for the sort of stuff that happened in Regium. They sent their troops down there, they besieged the city, and the soldiers that they had sent down there that took over the city that weren't killed in the attack were captured, dragged back to Rome, whipped to within an inch of their lives, and then beheaded in the Forum, as an example to others. Meanwhile, on Sicily, these Mamertines were busy making themselves a nuisance to everyone else on the island. So everyone else on the island started making themselves a nuisance to the Mamertines. Worried for their safety, one faction of the Mamertines seems to have gone to the Carthaginians for help. Another faction of the Mamertines seems to have gone to Rome for help. Eventually, both those powers answer the call for help, really probably looking at it more as an excuse to intervene. And conflict breaks out in a way that no one really ever foresaw over this island of Sicily. You could really compare it to the outbreak of the First World War. Remember, the First World War started because of an act of terror. A Serbian nationalist shot the heir to the throne of Austria. And from that incident, things spin out of control, and you end up with a war that's horrifying compared to what everyone thought might happen. Well, you could probably look at the Mamertines taking over this Sicilian city as a massive act of terrorism that should have just been a localized incident, but that spirals out of control and starts dragging in the great powers. This war over Sicily started in 264 and didn't end until 241. Killed a ton of people, wore out both Rome and Carthage, and led directly to the Second War, just like the First World War led directly to the Second World War. 
And if you go down the route of human experiences that blow your mind in this first Punic War, it has to do with navies. Because obviously, if you're going to fight a war for an island, navies are important. Carthage had the greatest navy in the world. Rome had no navy at all. The first sign that the Romans are really going to be something that the world has to pay attention to is how Rome went from having no navy at all to having a navy very quickly and then beating the Carthaginians at their own game. Some of the ancient writers say that what the Romans did was they didn't even know how to build a ship, supposedly, and they captured or found a Carthaginian vessel that had been wrecked on a beach, and they simply copied it. They didn't have anyone who knew how to row, so supposedly they would put this ship that they built on land and teach people how to row it. What's more, the Romans were not fools, and they realized that they would not be able to compete with the greatest naval power of the age because their rowers didn't know how to row. Their commanders of these vessels didn't know how to command them. So they invented something. This is another example of just Roman ingenuity that comes into play all the time. They invented something that the ancients said was called either the crow or the raven. It was an ingenious device. What it was was a mobile bridge that they put on top of their ships. And I guess it would stick either straight up or at a slight angle on the ships, and it looked like a giant bridge, like a drawbridge for a castle. And the, what you were supposed to do was get near the enemy ship and swing the drawbridge around. It had about a 180-degree turning radius, I guess. You would get next to the enemy ship. You would drop this drawbridge on them. It had a big spike at the very end of the drawbridge that would implant itself on the enemy ship's deck. And then these Roman soldiers would use this bridge to cross over and defeat the enemy navy's ships in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now, the Carthaginians fought naval battles the old-fashioned way, where the goal was to maneuver your ship in a way where you could ram the enemy ship with a big old metal ram you had on the front of your ship. When the Carthaginians won their battles, that's how they won them. Now, you can go read all the details about these things, but what blows me away is what it actually meant in practice. For example, there was a battle called, a sea battle called Echnemus. This happened in 256 BC. And in this one, the Romans and the Carthaginians brought 150,000 troops to the battle, each to the sea battle. That means there may have been 300,000 men at the Battle of Echnemus. That's amazing. There's never been a naval battle in human history with so many people involved. I like what historian Gwen Dyer has written about the capabilities of the Romans and Carthaginians, especially the naval side of things in this war. He says that when you factor in the technology and the organizational ability that it took these states to get these forces to sea to fight you know, their enemy, he compares it to the technology and organizational ability of 16th century Europe. Folks, that's 500 years ago. He's saying that the technology of Europeans 500 years ago was about on par with what the Romans and Carthaginians were able to put to sea 2,300 years ago. He also said that navies that can put 100,000 men to sea today would still be considered major naval players. Again, gives you an idea of what those people and those societies were capable of 2,300 years ago. That's a massive sea battle. Now, Echnemus, you probably had 40,000 people die or drowned in, which sounds like a lot, until you realize what the Romans were losing in storms. Polybius, who said that the way that the Romans beat people was by superior determination. There was a phrase that came up all the time in this story. The victor is not victorious if the enemy does not consider himself defeated. 
And that was what the Romans had going for them. Time and time again in their history, they would be defeated, well, by the ancient standards of what the term meant. You know, other powers would have conceded, and the Romans just didn't concede. This often confused their enemies, who were used to fighting one or two big battles. The loser of those battles would naturally sign a nice treaty and things would be over with. The Romans didn't do it that way. They never did it that way. When you signed a treaty with Rome, you admitted that you had lost and you were the inferior power. Or Rome didn't sign the treaty. Polybius says that that determination is what allowed them to wear down other human beings. But he said it backfired on them when it came to Mother Nature. Because the Romans had the same determined attitude when it came to facing, say, Mother Nature. And Mother Nature destroyed Roman fleets. The Romans had terrible storm disasters. One happened in 255 B.C., another happened in 253 B.C. In one of these storms, the Romans may have lost 300 ships and 80,000 men drowned against the shore in a day. Now, I don't know about you, but I always wonder what the heck that looked like. There are so many times during the Punic Wars I wish our ancestors had discovered photography long before they actually did. Because we all know, history takes a very different turn for us once photography is invented. About 150 years ago, we start seeing images of the past that are very different from the statues and paintings that we saw before then. Imagine if you could see video, DVD-quality video, of the Roman fleet being smashed in the storm and 80,000 guys in the water. Because I got news for you folks. I can't imagine what that looks like. There are so many events in the Punic Wars that I, I had to put my book down while I was doing the research and try to envision what this looked like. Because our modern minds have nothing that compares to this. Nothing we can say, oh, I bet it looked like that. What do 80,000 guys drowning in the water at the same time, what does that look like? By the way, that is considered to be probably the greatest mass drowning as a result of a naval disaster ever. The only thing I can think of that compares possibly to it is the famous story of uh, the kamikaze divine wind that smashed the Mongol invasion fleet in medieval times as it was trying to take over the Japanese. And no one knows how many died there, but probably comparable. Those are the two great drowning disasters as a result of naval efforts in the ancient world. There were some land battles in the First Punic War. This is where you get all your elephants on the Carthaginian side fighting the Romans. The Carthaginians are supposed to have uh, hired a Spartan general to reorganize their forces and teach them how to use their elephants and their cavalry and their infantry in a way that would help them defeat Rome. This guy's name, by the way, was uh, Xanthippus. And in one battle, the Carthaginians are using dozens and dozens and dozens of these elephants. Imagine trying to fight an elephant in hand-to-hand -hand combat. My favorite story of the First Punic War that I think casts the perfect sort of light on what the Roman attitude and what they would call virtues, what the Roman virtues were like at the time, involves a general captured during this era in the First Punic War. The guy's name was Regulus, by the way. Regulus is captured in, in this battle with Xanthippus and the Carthaginians. He's taken to Carthage, and then at a certain point, the Carthaginians are hoping for a peace settlement. So they're going to send this Roman general Regulus back to Rome to organize the settlement and make the terms and all that. Well, this whole thing may be fictitious, but it is symbolic of the Roman attitude. Regulus is sent back to Rome 
on the promise that he will return if he fails. And if he fails, he's going to be tortured to death by the Carthaginians, who, by the way, liked all that stuff. They loved to crucify people. They crucified generals who were unsuccessful. They crucified admirals who were unsuccessful. They crucified slaves they didn't like. They crucified animals for their own enjoyment, lions. Heck, they sacrificed their own babies, if you believe the ancient writers. Historian Will Durant writes, quote, To Baal Haman, in great crisis, living children were sacrificed, as many as 300 in a day. They were placed upon the inclined and outstretched arms of the idol and rolled off into the fire beneath. Their cries were drowned in the noise of trumpets and cymbals. Their mothers were required to look upon the scene without a moan or tear, lest they be accused of impiety and lose the credit due to them from the god. In time, the rich refused to sacrifice their own children and bought substitutes among the poor. But when Agathocles of Syracuse besieged Carthage, the upper classes, fearing that their subterfuge had offended their god, cast 200 aristocratic infants into the fire. More modern historians than Durant aren't sure what was going on, who these children were, whether they were alive or dead or anything like that, but somehow, someway, the bodies of children were being thrown into these Carthaginian coals. This was considered to be one of the most heinous religious practices of the ancient Mediterranean world. And there's really nothing quite like it anywhere else in the region. In any case, so they send Regulus back to Rome to argue for this peace treaty to end the First Punic War. And he's honor bound to return to be tortured to death if he fails, right? So he goes to Rome and the chroniclers say, instead of saying to the Romans, please make peace or I'm going to be tortured to death. If he even goes back, he says, don't make peace. The Carthaginians are near the end of their rope. Keep fighting. And then he goes back because he said he would. And he's duly tortured to death. That is the ancient Roman writer's wonderful example of what it means to have Roman values. Eventually, the First Punic War does peter out. There was a naval battle that the Carthaginians lost in 241 that really sealed the deal. But 23 years or so of war had worn out both those powers, neither of whom expected to have such a long commitment going on. As part of the deal, Carthage said that they would evacuate Sicily. They would pay this amount of money to the Romans as sort of reparations. They would get rid of their war fleet. And it wasn't a bad deal. A Roman consul had put it forward to the Carthaginians who snapped it up when they got the chance. Only the Carthaginians got kind of cheated in the deal because the consul didn't have the power to negotiate such an agreement. It's only the Roman people's part of the Roman legislature that agrees on peace treaty terms and they gave it a thumbs down and they changed the terms and demanded more money. This after the Carthaginians thought they already had a deal and had already started going through the motions of disbanding their armies and all that stuff. They were not in the position to say, hey, deal off, I'm going back to war. So they just had to suck it up and live with it. This embittered the Carthaginians for a long time. Another thing that embittered them is when the fighting had stopped, the mercenaries from Sicily were sent back to be paid in Carthage and the Carthaginians tried to shortchange them on their pay, saying that they couldn't afford to pay them now because they owed the Romans all this money. And so the army started a rebellion. The Carthaginian state 
was more in trouble and in danger from the rebellion of their own mercenaries than they were ever in danger from the Romans during the whole First Punic War. These mercenaries, when they were fighting in Sicily, had been commanded by a man named Hamilcar Barca, by the way. This is an important Carthaginian general, one of the few good ones. See, Hamilcar Barca is sort of like the fuse for the Carthaginian bomb that will go off in Italy a generation later. He really comes to our attention at the very end of the First Punic War. He's with those mercenaries that are now rebelling against Carthage, leading sort of a guerrilla warfare style of combat on the island of Sicily. And his troops are basically undefeated. The one concession he's able to wring out of the Romans at the end of the war is that his troops get to leave with their weapons because they were undefeated. So, of course, they go back to Carthage, and then the Carthaginian government wants to cheat them. That's another thing that embittered the Carthaginians, and especially Hamilcar himself. This idea that he'd been stabbed in the back by the politicians back in Carthage. Here he had this great army, and they were doing great, and then they sue for peace because they're weak on the home front. There's a lot of similarities between what happened to the Carthaginians at the end of the First Punic War and what happened to the Germans at the end of the First World War, causes that directly impacted the start of the next war. The Germans asked for an armistice, thinking that they were going to get a deal based on, you know, a pretty fair deal, based on American President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Several months after the war ended, with the British blockade, naval blockade, still on Germany, the Germans found out they were going to be subjected to another deal, nowhere near as good as the 14 points, and if they didn't like it, they could go back to war. The Carthaginians got basically the same deal. What's more, the Carthaginians went back, had this big mercenary war because they wouldn't pay their mercenaries. A horrible, atrocity-filled war that lasted for three years. Initially, the Romans were good about it and behaved, but they couldn't resist and eventually grabbed the island of Sardinia. The Carthaginians naturally complained, and the Romans said, Hey, if you don't like it, you can go to war with us again. What's more, for having the gall to even bring it up, we're going to up your reparations from the last war, too. How do you like that? That embittered the Carthaginians and Hamilcar even more. After the mercenary rebellion was crushed by more Carthaginian mercenaries, Hamilcar goes to Spain, where there had always been a Carthaginian presence, and he expands this presence through warfare and diplomacy. Tries to get his hands on the raw materials and the manpower of Spain. They had great silver mines, for example. And this could not have sat well with Rome, knowing that they had kind of kicked the Carthaginians when they were down and that they weren't too happy with them. To have the Carthaginians rebuild their power so quickly must have been a little unnerving. As a matter of fact, the Romans got word about all the stuff Hamilcar was doing in Spain, and they sent some ambassadors over there to check it out and talk to Hamilcar about it. The ancient writers say that they went to Hamilcar and said, What's going on here? What are you doing with all these troops building up all this power? And Hamilcar said... Well, I have a big debt to Rome I have to repay. Tough thing for the ambassadors to argue with. So he got away with stuff for a while. But Hamilcar, you see, hated the Romans and may have already had plans for launching a new war against them to make up for the old war. He had children by this time. Some of the writers have called Hamilcar's children the lion's brood because three of the boys would go on to be some of the greatest enemies Rome ever faced. One was the great general Hannibal, who supposedly at nine years old took an oath at his father's insistence that he would always be an enemy of the Romans. When Hamilcar died in Spain facing these barbarian tribes, supposedly he and his troops were ambushed 
and he laid his life down, one of the ancient writers said, to defend his kids so that they could get away. One of these kids was probably Hannibal. After Hamilcar died, his son-in-law takes over for a while, continues to build Carthaginian power in the region, takes a Spanish bride, is assassinated by a Celt. The Celts um, made up a big part of Carthaginian armies as well, often fought for pay. After Hamilcar's son-in-law is assassinated by the Celt, the army turns to the 26-year-old oldest son of Hamilcar. A man, Livy, one of the ancient writers who talks about this period, says was the embodiment of the younger version of Hamilcar reborn, or that that's what the army thought anyway. The same quickness of mind, the same fire in the eyes, that sort of thing. And they acclaim Hannibal their general. Now, the Carthaginian Senate was not used to their armies acclaiming their own generals. After all, these armies were of mercenaries. If they couldn't they could start to bring their own generals, well, that situation got out of hand not that long ago, right? With that mercenary war. But in this case, they acquiesced and allowed Hannibal to be the commander of the Carthaginian army in Spain, his father's army. There was another political faction, by the way, in Carthage that didn't like Hannibal or the Barkid family. And they argued that putting Hannibal in command of that army was asking for trouble because all those Barkid family members hated Rome and somehow Hannibal would get them into trouble with Rome. He was voted down, but he was proven right. So in 221 BC, Hannibal is in charge of an army and the stage is set. Wasn't that long afterwards, one, maybe two years, and Hannibal's army is nose to nose with Roman diplomats who are threatening war. What happened was there was this disputed city in northern Spain called Saguntum, and This city may or may not have been protected by a treaty that the guy who was in charge of these Carthaginian troops before Hannibal made with the Romans. When Hannibal started operating his army within close proximity to this town, the Romans sent some diplomats to him saying, what are you up to? You know, you better not mess with that town or we will mess with you. And they get a frosty reception. Hannibal runs down the list of all the things that Rome has done to make Carthage angry since the end of the First Punic War. He says, you changed the original deal after we'd already agreed to it. You took our island when we couldn't respond. And when we complained about it, you upped our reparation payments. He went down the whole list of the things that the Carthaginians were angry about. Hannibal puts Saguntum under siege and diplomats are sent to Carthage and they want to know from the Carthaginian Senate, is this guy a rogue general acting on his own or is this official policy and are we at war? The Roman ambassador, typically arrogant, the Roman ambassadors were arrogant. A little after this period, um, there's a famous story of a Roman ambassador who goes to address a Hellenistic king, right? This is a king of a large area, and you'd think he'd have a little deference. He asks the king for an answer on an important question, and the king says, I'll think about it and get back to you. And the Roman ambassador takes his stick, his rank of office, draws a tiny little circle around the feet of the king and says, have an answer for me before you step out of this circle. So in the grand tradition of Roman diplomacy... This ambassador, a famed member of the Senate in Rome, 
says to the Carthaginian Senate, I hold within the folds of my toga both peace and war. Which should I let drop? And the head of the Carthaginian government says, Whichever one you want. So then the Roman diplomat says, I choose war. And then the ancient writers say that screams from the senators thundered back at the Roman diplomat saying, We accept it! Such was the pent-up rage and hatred and feeling of injustice among the Carthaginian leadership. Those Roman diplomats were probably lucky to get out of there with their lives. Meanwhile, Hannibal takes the city of Saguntum and sacks it. Kills or enslaves everyone in typical ancient fashion. You have to remember... In the ancient world, there were actually rules governing the barbarism. But the barbarism was part of the rules. Usually the rule with a besieged city is that if you surrender before a siege weapon actually touches the wall, you'll get all sorts of options. If, however, the siege weapon touches the wall, all bets are off and we can do anything we want. Hannibal's troops raped and pillaged the city, put the population to the sword, or sold them into slavery. This is another one of those human experiences that we are spared from by living in the modern world. And I always try to think of the two sides of it. Think of the people in Hannibal's army that were looking forward to sacking the city. That's a part of human behavior that's got to still be in our DNA somewhere. We just don't acknowledge it. Or the thin veneer of civilization that covers it up, helps us deny it. But I was wondering if the same... You know, chemicals in your body that produce the adrenaline or whatever it is that makes this stuff fun. If that's all just part of modern-day soccer riots or other sorts of things that get out of hand. The ancient military historian Tacitus writes um, about a Roman civil war that happened after this period, but not that far after this period. And he describes the sack of a Roman city by other Romans, a Flavian army that was fighting for one of the factions of Rome. And... In his description, he makes it clear that the soldiers were looking forward to sacking the city and hoping that these fellow Italians of theirs didn't do anything peaceful that would screw up their chances of sacking the city. Listen to what Tacitus says. This is about the sacking of a city called Cremona in northern Italy. As the light faded, the Flavian army arrived in full strength outside the city of Cremona. Once they began to march over the heaps of dead and the fresh traces of bloodshed, they thought that the fighting was over and clamored to press on toward Cremona to receive or enforce the surrender of a beaten enemy. This, at any rate, is what they said openly, and it sounded good. But what each man thought in his heart was something different. A city on flat ground could be rushed, and an army which forced an entry during the hours of darkness would enjoy greater license to plunder. But if they waited for the dawn, it would be too late. There would be peace terms and appeals for mercy, When a city was stormed, its booty fell to the troops. When a city surrendered, its booty fell to the commanders. So you see that the troops were looking forward to this act of barbarity, this side of humanness that people would recognize from 8,000 B.C. till just recently. So what was the sacking of an ancient city like? Another one of those human experiences you can be glad you're not going to live through? Well, Tacitus continues because you see... The city of Cremona did surrender to the troops. So by the law of the ancient world, should have been immune from being sacked. But they were sacked anyway. 
Tacitus says. Forty thousand armed men forced their way into the city. Neither rank nor years saved the victims from an indiscriminate orgy in which rape alternated with murder and murder with rape. Graybeards and frail old women who had no value as loot were dragged away to raise a laugh. But any full-grown girl or good-looking lad who crossed their paths was pulled this way and that in a violent tug-of-war between would-be captors. A single looter trailing a hoard of money or temple offerings of massive gold was often cut to pieces by other looters who were stronger. In their hands they held torches, which once they had got their spoil away, they wantonly flung into empty houses and rifled temples. There was a diversity of wild desires, differing conceptions of what was lawful and nothing barred. Cremona lasted the troops four days. That is a human experience that has happened tens of thousands of times in human history. Common as heck in the world, well, not that long before ours. As I said, maybe Berlin in 1945 was the last time we had the sacking of a major modern western city, and even that would have been considered small time compared to Cremona. And I want to emphasize, the fall of that city was pretty average, nothing unusual about it. Try to imagine what this would look like if we had movies of it. DVD quality news footage of the sacking of an ancient city. Wouldn't that do the same thing to us that the color film footage of the Holocaust does to us? You ever seen that footage of the death camps liberated in full color and the aftermath of the Holocaust? Well, imagine seeing the raping and a sacking of a city in full high-def color. It would hit you in the gut, wouldn't it? Makes me jealous of our descendants a thousand years from now. They're going to be able to see what life was like a thousand years before they lived. Imagine being able to do that with things like the fall of Saguntum. So after Hannibal sacked Saguntum, he got together a large army and started marching overland towards Italy. You see, what made Hannibal different than the other Carthaginian generals from the First Punic War is that he was aggressive. He was much more like a Roman commander than a Carthaginian commander. The Carthaginians had really had a strategy in the First Punic War of fighting to not lose. They responded to Roman moves and just tried to survive, whereas the Romans were extremely aggressive, almost overly aggressive. But never had the Carthaginians had any plan for winning the war outright. What's more, after the First Punic War, there was no fleet in Carthage anymore. Rome controlled the waters. There was no way to get to Italy, except one, overland. But there was a problem. Between Italy and where the Carthaginians were, were the largest mountains in Europe, the Alps. This is what Hannibal was going to do. Hannibal's plan was to cross the Alps and invade Italy from the north. Now, whether or not this was his idea is something historians have wondered about ever since the event. Was this the son carrying on a plan that his father devised, which was what Alexander the Great was essentially doing when he invaded the Persian Empire? Or was this Hannibal's idea? The Romans must have thought the idea crazy the first time any of them heard about it. To them, the Alps were as great a barrier as the Pacific Ocean would be for the United States' enemies. And Hannibal crossing the Alps 
was about as big a feat as the Soviet Union deciding during the Cold War that they were going to send a land army over the Bering Straits into Alaska, through Canada, and down into the U.S. from the Canadian border. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? That's exactly how it must have looked to the Romans when Hannibal's intentions became clear. The army that he led from uh, northern Spain all the way to the edge of the Alps is, well, of indeterminate size, let's just say. Whenever you're dealing with the numbers from the ancient world or any battle figures, it's hard to know what the real number was. All sorts have been proposed. Maybe he had 90,000 men with him when he started. Some he let go pretty quickly. Some more he let go when they realized that the Alps were where he was taking them. Finally, he gets to the Alps with probably 50,000 guys. And there they are, towering in front of him. He's commanding this army that's of all sorts of mixed peoples. There are lots of Celts in this army, and there's going to be more. Hannibal's plan is to go on to the other side of the Alps, grab all these Celtic peoples who are angry with Rome and who had just recently been defeated by them, to his banner. Not only Celts, but lots of Spaniards in his army. He had some of the great Numidian African cavalry, which was a skirmishing kind of cavalry that was very difficult for, say, Roman cavalry to handle. He also had some elephants with him. His plan was to cross this major barrier, these alpine mountains, emerge on the other side, gather to his banner all these Gallic peoples that hated the Romans and had only recently lost to them again in some more fighting, He was going to defeat the Romans, and then he was going to try to detach all the Roman-Italian allies from their confederacy. Over the last hundred or so years, Rome had been putting together this group of city-states that was dominated by them. And some of the Italian cities, these Latin cities, were willing allies. Some of them places like where the Samnites lived or where these Greek city-states had recently been incorporated were less happy with being Roman. Hannibal was not planning on knocking down the gates of Rome and conquering the city. He was planning on taking all these peoples and breaking up the Roman alliance system. Isolate the Romans proper and then use the other Italians to keep Rome down. Wonderful modern historian of Carthage, Serge Lancel, says that he believed that Hannibal's goal was to run the film backwards, as he put it, and turn the clock back to what Carthage's place was in the world before the First Punic War started. And the whole plan rested on the audacity of crossing the Alps with a civilized army, something that generals, ever since Hannibal did it, have been admiring. People like Napoleon, just loving the audacity and the bold strokes. Napoleon crossed the Alps himself at one point. Julius Caesar, too, both admiring what Carthage had done before them. Crossing the Alps, though, is an amazing experience for the Carthaginians. Let's understand something. There had been human beings crossing the Alps for a long time. Just not a full civilized army, though, with all its pack animals and all its food and everything like that. As a matter of fact, this trip was going to take two to three weeks for the army, and there was going to be precious little to eat. One modern author has said if you want to try to visualize what Hannibal's army looked like on the march, think of a giant, rolling, ecological disaster destroying everything for several miles along each side of its route, eating up everything, raping all the women, destroying all the farms, killing all the men. They had some 
Gallic Celtic guides with them that were going to show them the way over the mountains. The only problem was there were Gallic tribes in the mountains who were not friendly to anyone. These tribes were to cause the Carthaginians trouble. One Carthaginian general had suggested way back when Hannibal was planning the expedition, when they were in Spain, that they might have to get their troops accustomed to the taste of human flesh because cannibalism might be necessary to make it across the Alps. That gives you an idea of how big of a barrier this was seen in the ancient world. In addition to all the natural problems you would have trying to get 50, 60,000 guys through these rugged mountains in ancient times, feeding and providing for them the whole way, is that some of the Gallic tribes in the mountains weren't going to cooperate with the Carthaginians passing through their territory. Several times during the crossing of the Alps, the Carthaginians had boulders rolled down on them. Sometimes they'd be trying to march up these mountainsides in single file, and all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of Celts would just charge down the mountainside in an ambush, tearing apart the columns. What's more, they were at steep angles all the time. One writer I read was talking about where Carthaginian soldiers would slide off the side of the path onto an ice sheet where they couldn't go up and they had to hold themselves to keep from slipping down and eventually, because they couldn't be rescued, had to make a choice between starving to death on the spot on the rocky mountainside snowy ledge or allowing themselves to just drop off and be smashed and be done with it. Pack animals went over the side, elephants went over the side. Boulders cut their path off. Whole sides of the path on the cliff sometimes had fallen away and the Carthaginian engineers kept trying to make paths that even elephants could cross. The weather turned bad while they were crossing. The snow giving them frostbite. The food running out. Getting lost and having to backtrack. It's an amazing story. As a matter of fact, modern historians still argue over the path, the actual path Hannibal chose. No one knows how Hannibal got from one side of the Alps to the other. The Roman historian Livy, writing more than a century later, has Hannibal delivering a dramatic speech to his men when he reaches the summit of the Alps. And, you know, you can see all of the plain of Italy stretched out, you know, in the distance towards the horizon. He wrote, On the ninth day, Hannibal's army reached the summit. Most of the climb had been over trackless mountainsides. Frequently a wrong route was taken, sometimes through the deliberate deception of the guides, or again, when some likely-looking valley would be entered by guesswork without knowledge of whither it led. There was a two-day halt on the summit to rest the men after the exhausting climb and the fighting. Some of the pack animals which had fallen amongst the rocks managed, by following the army's tracks, to find their way into camp. The troops had indeed endured hardships enough, but there was worse to come. It was the season of the setting of the Pleiades. Winter was near, and it began to snow. Getting on the move at dawn, the army struggled slowly forward over snow-covered ground. The hopelessness of an utter exhaustion in every face. Seeing their despair, Hannibal rode ahead, and at a point of vantage which afforded a prospect of the vast extent of country, he gave the order to halt, pointing to Italy far below in the Po Valley beyond the foothills of the Alps. My men, he said, you are at this moment passing the protective barrier of Italy. Nay more, you are walking over the very walls of Rome. Henceforward, all will be easy going. No more hills to climb. After a fight or two, you'll have the capital of Italy, the citadel of Rome, in the hollow of your hands. Livy also wrote about the descent from the Alps. 
The track was almost everywhere precipitous, narrow and slippery. It was impossible for a man to keep his feet. The least stumble meant a fall, and a fall meant a slide, so that there was indescribable confusion, men and beasts stumbling and slipping on top of each other. Hannibal's troops emerged from the Alps, shadows of the people they were when they entered about two and a half weeks before. Half the army was gone. The survivors were ragged, demoralized, in need of recovery and relief. The greatest danger Rome had ever faced had just made it to the other side of the Alps, the equivalent of that Soviet army making it all the way to the Canadian-U.S. border. Now the Romans were going to find out just how dangerous an enemy the son of Hamilcar was, and they were going to get Hamilcar's revenge from beyond the grave. This hatred passed down to the next generation was about to strike them and pay them back for their arrogance after they defeated Carthage the first time. The Second Punic War will be the most terrible war in Roman history, and it's about to get serious. Now the real killing, butchery, and death is about to start. Coming up in part two of this episode, Hannibal is unleashed upon Rome. And in the next two years alone, more than 100,000 Roman soldiers would pay the price. Before he's finished, maybe 10% of all military-bearing-age Italians are killed. Then the fortunes of war will begin to turn. The Romans will invade Africa, and Hannibal will be recalled to a land that he left and probably had not seen since he was nine years old to fight the Romans on African soil. And finally, the saga culminates in the Third Punic War, and Carthage, this massive African city, fights for its very survival with Roman armies outside its walls and Roman fleets outside its harbors. It's one bloody, horrible human experience after another that culminates in a genocide so total that it's safe to say northern Africa has never quite recovered. That on the next Hardcore History episode. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. A buck a show. It's all we ask. Go to dancarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show.